Good morning or good afternoon, depending on what time of day you are listening to this. As I speak, it is almost 1,500 hours, which would be 3 p.m. for you civilian types, and we're going to uh, get underway with our second session, recorded session, in our series on the opening verses of John's Gospel, the prologue, verses 1 through 18. We only went through verses 1 through 3 last week because there's quite a bit there I wanted to focus on. We're going to pick up the pace a bit today and probably go through verse 13. We'll see uh, how the Spirit leads and then finish up, uh, Lord willing, next time. So let's go ahead and reread the uh, prologue and give us a context of where we are. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 18. I'm reading through the American Standard. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's just uh, ask God's blessing on our time here today. Uh, Father, we just thank you uh, for your word, and as we go into it now, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into the message you would have us to hear, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we noted last week, the opening 18 verses of John's Gospel are rightly called a prologue rather than a preface, because they state themes that are later developed in the gospel. And if you were to think about this and have the prologue open on one side and the rest of the gospel as you read through, you would see these themes brought up again as you read through uh, the gospel. And again, as I pointed out last time, eventually there will be a handout available here at the chapel uh, when things get back uh, to normal. But if you would like to have that before then, I'd be more than happy to send you an email that would have a word file or else a screenshot that you could get via message if you would like to have that uh, before that time. Just let me know. Give me a call. Send me an email um, or as a text. But isn't in, in the entire gospel, the focus of attention in the prologue is on the person and work of the Son of God, who is the Lagos or Word. John's stated purpose in writing his gospel is found in chapter 20 and verse 31. Actually, I'm going to read verses 30 and 31 of John 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The theme of the Gospel of John is that as the Son of God, Jesus Christ is fully God, fully human, fully divine. 
It's hard for us to comprehend, but it is what the Bible clearly teaches about the Lord Jesus. We learn in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus is the Logos, the Word. In Greek philosophy, Logos referred to the stabilizing, directing principle of the universe. For the Greeks, it was creative energy. All things came from it, and men derived wisdom from it. But John's essential thought here does not derive from Greek philosophy. To truly understand this term, logos, or word, we need to consider its Old Testament background. Throughout the Old Testament, we find the expression, the word of the Lord, used to designate the message of Jehovah. So it is very appropriate for John to personify the word and apply it as a title for the Father's ultimate self-expression or disclosure, person of his own son. Now, last time we read Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, and I'd like to read them again today. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Uh, it is a title for the Father's ultimate self, self-expression or disclosure. We also learn in verses 1 and 2 that the word, the Lord Jesus, is eternal. He had no beginning, and he will have no end. He is a person, eternally in the closest possible relationship with the Father, and he is God. The word was God. These four words form the clearest, most direct declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in all four Gospels. The Lord Jesus is not a God, not a part of God, not a form of God, or not God-like. No, he is fully God in his essence, in his nature, yet distinct from the Father. In verse 3, we learn that the Son was the Father's agent in creation. We see this here in verse 3, all things came into being through him. We also read that in Hebrews 1, 2, through whom he also made the world. Um, Comment on by or through here, I think, is necessary. We talked about this last time, but I really wanted to make some introductory remarks here as kind of a context to get us going here uh, this morning. Uh, There's a difference between by and through. And in the Greek, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. Sometimes in English, it's not. You know, we can say something is done by someone or something is done through someone. The references to uh, creation regarding the Lord Jesus are almost universally are done through him. And I think a good way to see the difference here between those two prepositions is in Matthew 1.22. We read it last time, and I'll read that again now. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And so the son was, the Lord Jesus was, the father's agent in creation. Now, there's just some opening remarks to get us going today, and I guess now we'll get into um, today's study. If we might subtitle verse 3 as the universe explained, then we might subtitle verse 4 as the mystery of life explained. Let's read verse 4 again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We move on from creation in general to the creation of life, the most significant element in creation. The logos, the word himself, is a life giver. All life derives from him. Jesus Christ is not only the creator of physical life and physical light, he is also the source of spiritual life and spiritual light. And that is the main thought that is captured in verse 4. God's first creative act in Genesis 1 was producing light. Jesus is the true light, that is the original light from which all light has its source. In John's gospel, we find a conflict between light, God, eternal life, and darkness, Satan, eternal death. And we will see this as we continue in our study of the prologue. John uh, John also tells us in verse 4 that Jesus is the author of life, which should point all people 
toward him. Uh, the Greek word for life here is zoe, from which we get our word zoology and the uh, women's name or girl's name, zoe. And this word can refer to physical life or spiritual life, depending on context. It is the same word that is used in such well-known verses uh, as John 3.16, John 3.36, and 1 John 5.11.12. I know these are very familiar verses. I'm going to take the time uh, to read them um, anyway. Many of you might be able to quote them from um, and without actually reading them. So if you are listening along, that's fine. If you have your Bibles open or your devices out, I hope you will turn to them and follow along with me. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.36, just a little further down, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then turning over a bit further, uh, near the end of the New Testament, uh, to 1 John, 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I think I shared this once before in a different setting. Uh, that these verses have a special, in First John, have a special significance for me. In the spring of 1960, my mom and dad came to faith in the Lord Jesus through the outreach of this chapel. And shortly thereafter, um, I was led to, uh, to faith in Christ as well. But after a visiting missionary had talked to my mom and dad about all the ins and outs and gone through the Roman roads and some other ways to explain uh, the way of salvation to them, what put my dad over the hump, as he put it, what really got him uh, to uh, come to faith in Christ for those verses in 1 John, verses 11 and 12. Uh, John uses the word life 36 times in his gospel. That's more occurrences than in any other New Testament book. Uh, commentators uh, differ as to whether life in verse 4 refers to creation or salvation. It may have a dual meaning here as elsewhere in John pointing back to creation, but also ahead to the salvation that Jesus brings. Uh, John has sometimes uh, using double meanings or possibility of double meanings elsewhere. I'll give you an example of this in, in chapter 3, not too far from where we are. But if you look at chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You may have a marginal note that says they're born from above. Born from again, born from above. The same down there in verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again or from above. Being born again is indeed being born from above. So John, on occasion, does use that double sense, and I think that could be the, the possibility here as well. The word we have in verse 4 is the word that Jesus uses in John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ gives physical life to all, but he also gives eternal life to all those who come to him and believe in him. The application here is that those who are spiritually dead in their sins need life, and Jesus is the source of that life. Jesus is the only source of true light in this spiritually dark world. Verse 5 again. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus Christ is not only the source of spiritual life, he is also the only way that we can have spiritual light. In Scripture, light and darkness are familiar, contrast of terms, and John uses them often. The divine life embodied in Christ brought unique uh, light to people, revealing divine truth and exposing their sin. Everywhere Christ went, he brought light. 
verse, uh, chapter um, 8 and verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light, capital L, um, of life. Now note here that some Bible versions have the word comprehend at the end of verse 5, while others have overcome or overpower. The Greek word that is used can have two meanings, much like our word grasp. It can mean to comprehend or grasp mentally. Uh, the King James, the NASB, uh, go that way. But notice if you have those versions that in the marginal note they have overpower. So they're giving you both possibilities here. Uh, or it can mean to overcome or take hold of something in a sense of mastering it physically. And a number of Bible translations have that. But it's interesting as I looked at these, they all have the other possibility in the marginal note. So you could go either way um, uh, with, that, with that word. And interestingly, the NLT, the New Living Translation, has can never extinguish it. It's not a matter of a textual difference here. Some manuscripts reading one way, others reading differently. It's a difference in translation. The word can hit and encompass both of those meanings, and the translators went with one or the other based on what they felt fit the context. But again, they give you the other possibility in the marginal notes. And I'm, I'm always pleased when they do that. Sometimes those marginal notes are not there, and you're th- they make a statement, okay, it's this or it's that, but I like to have that uh, other side given. And that gives you the, uh, um, you know, the opportunity as well to make an informed decision as you, what you might think fit better there. If John is referring to creation here, then his meaning is that when God said, let there be light, the light overcame the darkness. But John uses the present tense here, which probably focuses on Jesus' coming to earth and the conflict between him and the powers of darkness that we see in this gospel. They, that is the Jews, crucified the Lord Jesus, but he arose and conquered the darkness. His salvation conquers the spiritual darkness in every heart that trusts him. But this word may also be translated comprehend. And this meaning also fits a theme in John's gospel. Those in the world did not know him, as we see when we get to verse 10. Even his own people did not receive him, verse 11. Because sinners walk in darkness, they fail to see who Jesus really is. Later in chapter 8, the Jews actually accuse him of having a demon. So perhaps John's use of this ambiguous term has both meanings. The darkness will not overcome the light, that light comes through Jesus. And the darkness cannot comprehend the light unless Jesus opens their blind eyes to see. Uh, Let's go ahead and reread verses 6 through 9, and we'll take a look at this portion. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might uh, believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. The point of witnesses in a courtroom is to establish the truth beyond a reasonable doubt. Besides the disciples, John gives us several witnesses to Jesus Christ. The Father, that's in the gospel, the Father, Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, Jesus' works, the scriptures, the Samaritan woman, the multitudes, and John the Baptist. In these verses here before us, we see two of the witnesses, John the Baptist and Christ himself. John's purpose here was clear. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. That is through the testimony of John, as verse 8 makes clear. And the true light, Jesus himself witnesses who he is, and I think that's the sense of verse 9. Now, we need to sort out an, an interpretive issue here. First, and the main thing here is, does coming to the world there in verse 9 modify man? Is it in the King James Version or New King James Version? We read something like this. 
Does coming into the world there in verse 9 modify man as in the King James or New King James? That was the true light that gives light to uh, every man coming into the world. Or with the New American Standard, the NIV, ESV, and a few others, does it refer to light coming into the world? The true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. It's a fairly small thing. If you put them side by side, they read a little bit differently. And it, you, know, you can kind of come to a conclusion there. It's not a major difference, but if you're reading one and hearing somebody read from another, it might uh, give you a little bit of a pause there. Because grammatically, either one of those expressions would work. I like the second option because in the next verse it is said that the light was in the world. And also in other passages, Jesus is described as coming into the world. Uh, And so I think that I like that a little bit better myself. Uh, The world, the Greek word cosmos, is mentioned for the first time here in John. And this is another important uh, theme word in this gospel. It's interesting, too, because that's the same word in, in Russian, in the language that I studied for many years, that, that means world. And the, the Russian astronauts are known as cosmonauts. So that's, if you ever, ever wondered about that, which you probably didn't, that's the history behind that term. But the world here, cosmos, is mentioned for the first time here in the gospel. Now, generally with John, the world does not refer to the totality of creation or to the universe. There are, of course, some um, exceptions to that. Uh, John normally uses the word cosmos to refer to the world of human beings and human affairs, and often in a sense of mankind in rebellion against God. The light here is not referring to inner illumination, but to the objective revelation or light that comes into the world through the incarnation. This light shines on every person and divides the human race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does, and we'll see here in verse 10. Uh, in just a minute. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed by the light. And in connection with that, I would like to read um, a couple of verses in John chapter 3. Uh, 3 verses 19 uh, through 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So many flee lest their deeds should be exposed by this light, but some receive this revelation, as we'll see here as we finish up uh, today. In John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. John's point here is that the witness that comes from the light, that is Jesus, demands a response. Now that the source of light has come to earth and has illumined the minds of humanity, no one can, can legitimately claim ignorance. All who do not believe are without excuse. So that's why the Lord Jesus says what he does in John 15. I'm going to turn to there. Uh, John chapter 15 and verses 22 through 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not come, done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me, and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill one word that is written in their law, they hated me without, without a cause. When the light exposes the corruption and sin that's in everyone's heart, some will react like cockroaches when the light is flipped on. Excuse the graphic uh, um, image here. They run for cover to hide their wicked deeds. And I was thinking about something. It really doesn't have to come in here, but why not? You know, I'm, I'm up here, so I'll go ahead and, and, and add it in. I remember growing up in Hartwell, and I don't remember how old I was, but I remember coming home at night in the dark 
and walking out there and feeling this crunch under my feet, and it was water bugs, which I think is a, is a, a, a relative, if not actually a, a cockroach. But the imagery, imagery here is kind of stark, but I think it's very good. Now they run for cover um, to hide, um, folks who run for cover to hide their wicked deeds. But others welcome the light, knowing that it's for their healing and their good. Uh, John goes on to show these opposite responses in the next few verses. The witness that God has given regarding his son demands a verdict. And having said that, I'm kind of sounding a little bit like uh, Josh McDowell in the books that, that he wrote. First, John shows the wrong verdict. Some reject John's witnesses regarding the true light. I like to read verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, there's a wordplay here in, in the Greek uh, the first his own is, is neuter plural and refers to his own property, his own possessions, literally his own things. The second his own is masculine plural and refers to his fellow Jews, the people uh, of Israel. They should have recognized Jesus as their promised Messiah who was prophesied of in their scriptures. But he wasn't the kind of Messiah they envisioned or wanted. They were hoping for a political Messiah who would deliver them from Rome's power and provide peace and prosperity. They didn't see their need for a savior from sin. And so they rejected the true light who made them and who rightfully owned them. I think there are two applications for us here. One is for those who do not believe in Christ, who have not come to faith in Christ primarily. That is, make sure you're not rejecting the true light in spite of the solid testimony that he is the eternal word in human flesh. It's easy to be disappointed in Jesus because he didn't give you quick relief from all your problems. But be careful because it's a short step from there to turning your back on him altogether. And second, specifically for believers, don't be surprised when people do not respond positively to your witness for Christ. People still like the darkness because their deeds are evil. But of course, not all reject him, as we'll see here in the next couple of verses. Let's read verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 12 is one of the most important and pivotal verses in the Bible. As many as equals all who, that is, all who accept Christ as Savior. There is nothing in the pronoun here, all who, to restrict it to the Jews, even if we take the previous verse as speaking exclusively of the rejection of Christ by Israel as a nation. Those who receive Christ and believe in his name become children of God, we are told in verse 12. To receive Christ is the opposite of not knowing him and rejecting him. And we are there in verses 10 and 11. It means to welcome him into your life, to receive him as your personal savior. John further defines it as believing in his name. To believe in his name means to believe all the truth about him that is revealed in the Bible and all that his name stands for, not just that he's a historical person, but that he is God. He came into this world to save sinners. He died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. Believing in his name means that you stop relying on your own merits and work as the way and works as the way to approach God. And instead, you rely totally on what Jesus did for you on the cross. It means that when you stand before God, your only hope for heaven is not your good work. Salvation is a gift, as we read in the well-known scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. John says that when we receive Christ or believe in him, he gives us the right or authority. Some versions have power to become children of God. And he continues there in verse 13. We were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Actually, it's bloods here. It's in the plural rather than the singular. I think bloods refers to human ancestry, a male and a female parent that is human descent. The will of the flesh has no negative overtones and refers to the purely natural or physical sphere. That is the decision of human parents to have a child. The will of man or husband indicates that spiritual rebirth does not originate in human desire or a husband's initiative. And I say husband there because the word that is used there is not anthropos, which is more generally and generic for man, but the word aner, which can mean either a man or a husband. In some languages, the word man can refer to both. German is like that. Russian is like that as well. So I think here it could be the will of a man or a husband. Uh, could be either one there. could be understood. Our spiritual birth has not come through any of these means. Rather, it is a supernatural work of God. We are spiritually regenerated, and we belong to God now. In sum, the three negated uh, phrases that we have there in verse 13 affirm that believers in Jesus Christ do not become God's children by natural means. Rather, they owe their spiritual rebirth to the action of God himself. It is of God that is the source of this rebirth. In other words, divine procreation is totally unrelated to human procreation. Spiritual generation has nothing to do with physical generation. Now, at this point, I have some bonus material. Um, if you ever look at some CDs of films, different things, I'll have one of the options will be looking at bonus material. I have a little bit here, and I was going to use it or not use it, depending on where we were and what time we were. So you, you've got a couple of these here. Uh, whether you want them or not, I'm going, to, I'm going to give them to you. But one has to do with Christ is the one universal light. There is no other. And that goes back really to verses 4 and 5 and, and talking about um, uh, the light and the supreme um, light, the Lord Jesus Christ. As creator, Jesus not only provides light, but he also makes people light-sensitive. What is seen by the light of Jesus? When Christ's light shines, we see our sin and his glory. We can refuse to see the light and remain in darkness, but whoever responds will be enlightened by Christ. He will fill our minds with God's thoughts. He will guide our path. He will give us God's perspective, and he will drive out the darkness of sin. John illustrates the action of Christ's light in the chapters to follow through the examples of the disciples. We'll see if you read through the, uh, uh, the rest of the gospel. Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, and the blind man that Jesus healed. As the light of this world, Christ came into the spiritually dark world, but for the most part, the world did not realize who he was or why he had come. The world didn't comprehend or apprehend the light, and it still doesn't. The average person in your neighborhood, at your place of work, in your school, doesn't comprehend or apprehend the light. They think that Jesus was just a good man, and that was all. Second part of the bonus material. Notes on believing in the fourth gospel. The noun belief, or faith, pistis, and the verb believe, pistuo, are each used by a strange coincidence, but maybe, maybe not so strange after all, 243 times in the New Testament. These two terms represent the appropriate human response to God and Christ, and they point to the essence 
of Christianity. Now, interestingly, John never uses faith, the noun, in his gospel, although it is found once in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, and four times in Revelation. His preference is for the verb pistuo, and it illustrates his preference for verbs over nouns. The verb believe is very common in John's gospel, 98 occurrences. So it is not surprising that this gospel is called the gospel of belief. And interesting, when we talk about believers and using that term, uh, the biblical basis for that New Testament would be this verb or the participial form of it, those who believe, uh, believing ones. And that's uh, really where we actually get this term, uh, believers. The distinctive phrase, believe in, depicts the total commitment of one's total self to the person of Christ as Messiah and Lord. Something more than intellectual acceptance of the message of the gospel and a recognition of the truth about Christ. All these aspects are certainly involved. For John, belief involves not only recognition and acceptance of the truth, but also adherence and allegiance to Jesus as the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. To believe in Jesus is to come to him, to receive him, to love him, and to follow him. I'd like to read a few verses in connection with this. To come to him, John chapter 6 and verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he who has testified me, you have neither heard his voice nor any time. Let's see here, 637. I'm on chapter 537. That's why that did not sound familiar to me. Chapter 637, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. To receive him, we just read that in, in, in chapter uh, 1 in verse, um, in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. To love him, we could go to some different places there, but I'm going to go to chapter 14 in verses 21 through 23. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not as Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened to you or that you are going to disclose yourself and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him. We'll make our abode with him. And then finally, and to follow him. And again, there are verses that we could pick out here. But I'm going to read, let's see, chapter 8 and verse 12 again. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Next time, Lord willing, and I don't know if it will be in this format or if we'll be live here at, um, at the chapel, but um, the way it's looking now, it might be this particular uh, venue. But uh, I was thinking that, you know, that this, we're living in different times, a lot of strange things happening, things that are difficult uh, to deal with. But in spite of present circumstances, God is in control. And that's a, very, that's a thought that I go to often. And before this, I went to it often. And now in this time, I'm going to um, uh, even more so. But next time, I'd like to cover the last five verses. Uh, I think uh, verse 14 are considered by some to be the most important uh, verse in, in, in the Bible. I don't know if I'm uh, in total agreement with that, but I certainly would rate it up for some of the, uh, the most important but we talked about the, um, the Lord Jesus eternally existing, you know, and now we're going to talk about a point in time which he does something that people of that day just couldn't really wrap their minds around, and that was he became flesh and then dwelt among us. And so we're going to focus on those verses next time, uh, verses 14 
through 18. And again, I, I wish we could um, do this a little with a little more uh, um, interaction. As I look out there, I could see some hands and I could call on someone. Steve so far isn't raising his, but uh, if he does, that would be great. But <laughs> just joking here, of course. But um, I like that interaction. But um, I do have, I think I told you, a handout uh, for this for this study, and uh, it'll be available here when we get back to, I say when we get back, not if, when we get back to a uh, meeting here at the chapel, we'll make that available. But if you'd like it now, I can get it to you. I can send it to you in a Word document, or I could take a screenshot of it and send it to you by text. And I'd like to do that, and if you'd like to have it, uh, feel free to, uh, uh, to let me know. And go ahead and pray. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we just thank you for this time. That together we can spend your word. Meet us, Father, as we face what's going on around us. You know, we, we do know that you're in control, even though things sometimes look like they're out of control. We do pray for our uh, governmental leaders. We pray for um, medical professionals and those who are working on trying to find a way to treat uh, the coronavirus and even come up with a vaccine for it. Father, we just, we just pray for your wisdom. They would seek you for uh, for your wisdom, Father, and we just pray for a guidance and direction for uh, your universal church, your local church, and each individual believer, Father, that we would look to you during this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.